Welcome to the Dog Days podcast, where today we sit down with Ian McKenzie, Junior Eldstell, and me, Ollie Scott, and our wonderful guest, Josh Connolly. Josh will be covering resilience, um, his story, and, and personal improvements, and also, rather interestingly, how you can overcome any feelings of anxiety or worry. This is the Dog Days with Ollie Scott, Junior Eldstell, and Ian McKenzie. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Dog Days podcast. My name is Ollie Scott, and I'm joined by Junior Eldstyle and okay. Ian McKenzie. And today, we have a wonderful new guest joining us, Mr. Josh Connolly. Hello, Josh Connolly. Hello. hello. How, How are you doing, you? mate? How are you doing? Good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited and happy to be here with Thanks you guys. for coming down, yeah, thank by you. the way. Yeah, no, uh, and that, uh, that wasn't a real introduction because I haven't explained who you are. Um, Josh Connolly is a life coach that is joining us today and also ambassador of Nakawa. Um, Josh, can you just tell me quickly what NACOA stands for, if I'm pronouncing it wrong or right? It, yeah, it's NACOA, uh, and it stands for National Association for Children of Alcoholics. So uh, we're, at, we're predominantly a helpline that people affected by parents drinking can call and uh, speak to a trained counsellor. Amazing, amazing. Mm. And, um, and just for everybody else who's listening, where, where's that accent from, mate? Uh, well, my accent is <laughs> <laughs> from Bristol, yeah. So uh, it'll come in and out and <laughs> flitter between going into London when I when I'm trying my best to fit in. Amazing. To well, be fair, I think it's because your accent, Ollie, is quite strong. So oh, you just piss off. Everyone naturally becomes very posh when you're <laughs> with Ollie Scott. <laughs> 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 That's true. Well, thank you, thank you for coming all the way from, from Swindon to join us here in the deep, dark depths of Wimbledon. I think we could say Wimbledon, or are we in Collier's Wood? Who knows? Um, what we're looking to do today is, is go through your story uh, and understand a lot more about where you come from. I guess... For all of us, this is a podcast where we educate and inspire people that are going through the daily struggles, um, whether that's starting your own business or whether it's uh, starting a new job or anything really in general. Um, and we're here to connect people to the stories, the genuinely real stories, and not just the Hollywood stories of people that have gone through some tough times, mm. um, of course, of which you are one of those people. And it's great to be connected with you here today um, to help us understand where you were how you got to where you are today, which is an amazingly inspirational place. Um, and, and generally to give us any tactics or hacks that we can use or our, our listeners can use um, to improve their day-to-day -day lives. So I'm gonna stop talking because I'm gonna be incredibly boring. Um, thank you. Uh, and, and Josh, speaking of intros, where did it all begin for you? Look, my story begins from when I was a child, right? Um, the world that I was brought into was um, small and scary. Um, and it was all to do with and entwined in the fact that my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, it was a hugely chaotic influence on my life. Um, and the truth is, I don't have any good memories of, of what my dad was like. Uh, there was me and my, my two brothers when I was when I was younger. And... You know, my earliest memories are from when I was like four or five years old and my dad was either there or he wasn't there. And me and my brothers would spend most of the time upstairs because that's what you did because downstairs was scary. Um, and, you know, you never really knew what my dad was gonna be like when he, when he drank and it often meant violence. And because we stayed upstairs, there was this idea that that protected us somehow because we didn't really see what was going on downstairs yet. Um, but I took it upon myself as a child to, I was always really concerned about how other people around me were feeling. 
So I became really, really hyper vigilant to what was going on and I would lay upstairs uh, listening to what was going on downstairs and listening to the chaos and I became really, really hyper vigilant to it. And so when there was crashing and banging and screaming going on downstairs, I became like obsessed and kind of addicted to picking apart what was going on, yeah? And at the age of four or five, I knew the difference between a thud that was a thud on the wall and a thud that was a thud on my mum. I knew the difference between when my mum screamed in anger and when she screamed in terror of, of, of what was about to happen. I knew the difference between the sound of my dad opening can one and my dad opening can four. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I knew the difference between uh, the way that he breathed when he was really drunk and the way that he breathed when he wanted to get drunk. And so I was really, really hyper vigilant to, to all of that stuff. Yeah. And while everything was going on downstairs, I would I used to lay on the landing um, and listen because I always had a real fear that someone downstairs was going to die. And that wasn't like a, a a conscious feeling that my dad was going to kill someone. It was just a real heightened anxiety that at that age, all I could put it to was was the feeling like someone was going to die because it was that that terrifying, yeah? Uh, and I would wait and I would listen and I would pick things apart. And then it would always end in silence, right? And then when, so when the silence came, my mum would come up and she would often walk past me on the landing and it was was kind of like a family joke that I could only sleep on the landing and when my mum come up I'd pretend to be asleep she'd go in bed and then I would go downstairs and like try and see where my dad was and I'd often I remember looking to see if his chest was moving and if his chest was moving it meant that my dad was alive yeah. and I could kind of I could go to sleep then um, and that's how I lived my life that's what I did uh, each and every night I'd pick apart what was going on downstairs and there was one particular occasion when uh, my dad had turned up at the house and he'd smashed all the windows through on the front of the house and he had a knife and he was trying to get my mum with his knife. And I had come down this, I'm like five years old, right? And I'd come halfway down the stairs and was watching it all going on. And the police showed up and they did what they, they always did, which was restored the peace, yeah? They, they they sorted my dad out. But on this one time, the, the, the policeman must have seen the terror in me because he came over to me to speak to me. and. What's important about this is he was a good policeman, yeah? I, I knew at that age, even at five years old, I knew he'd come over to help me. I knew that he could see uh, that I was struggling and that I was worried. And he knelt down and he was a good man who tried to help me. And he said, don't worry, everything's okay. There's nothing to be scared of um, and everything will be all right. Now, at five years old, I, I could only take him at face value. I didn't have enough about me to think this guy's just trying to make me feel better, yeah? So he's trying to tell me something positive. So I took what he said at complete face value. And I think he said what a lot of us would say to somebody in that situation. But what he actually did was completely devalue all the way that I felt. Because here's, here's a, a, a trusting adult telling me there's nothing to be scared of. And I felt absolute terror. Yeah. Um, and he was telling me that everything was going to be okay. And I felt absolutely you know, terrified that nothing was going to be okay. And he told me there was nothing to worry about. And, uh, and I couldn't help but be absolutely fearful of the next minute of my life, let alone the next day. But what it did is it made me start to not trust the ways that I feel because I started to think, well, he says there's nothing to be scared of. And uh, so there's something wrong with me. I shouldn't be so scared. Because what you got to understand as well is at five years old, that was all I knew. So I'm not comparing this to anything. Yeah, I've never seen uh, like a what you want to call normal family home. So yeah. I don't know this is any different. I'd, this is my perception of the world. My home was my world. That's the way I thought the world was. 
And because the next day my mum would act like everything was okay because she didn't know what else to do under the stress, I started to learn that to be okay and to be happy in this world is you pretend, yeah? You push down what scares you, you push down the ways that you feel and you get on with life and you pretend everything's okay. And that's important because when we talk about um, reasons why people don't talk and everybody just says it's about the stigma and blames it all on stigma, yeah. it was to do with the way that I was conditioned. It was to do with the way that I saw the world and the beliefs that I had, yeah? My dad went to prison when, uh, not, you know, not when I was still five years old, he went to prison for like two years and we used to go and visit him and I remember we went to visit him on one occasion and uh, I had mentioned that we'd been out for the day and he, I saw my dad ask me, where, like, where did you go? And I told him and he's like, how did you get there? And I, I knew because I was very intuitive with how people's uh, reactions to things changed. I, I knew he was angry and I knew he was fishing for an answer and I remember just saying who, my stepdad's name um, because you know, my dad had split up with my mum by then and my mum had uh, met my stepdad, who she's remarried, who's an amazing guy. Um, but I said my stepdad's name and then my, my dad beat my mum up in the in the visiting centre. Uh, and we were like hauled out of there. And the same thing happened. A prison officer came to me on the way out and said, don't worry, there's nothing to be scared about. Mm. Everything's going to be all right. And so here I am again, absolutely terrified about what's happening. My body's like trembling. I'm in a real heightened state of fear. And an adult's telling me that there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. So more, this is more learning that I shouldn't be feeling what I'm feeling. More idea that there's something wrong with me. But also in that, I thought to myself, I could have lied. Mm. I could have said that we just got the bus there, right? Yeah, sure. And because of the stress that our family was under and the, the things that you do to cope and to survive in them situations, I know my, my mum and my brothers would have backed me up with the lie. Mm. And so I started to become a liar, I started to lie, I started to fabricate things. I started to think of the right answer to give people when they ask me things, yeah? Give so them what they wanted to hear, give, basically. Exactly, yeah. and so I was, I, I started to lose my authenticity straight away. That I wasn't showing up to the world as the person that I am, I was showing up to the world as the person that I thought you wanted me to be, yeah. and, and also the person that I thought any given situation wanted me to be. So I was a liar and I was a fraud from the age of six, seven years old. My dad, came out of prison when I was like seven um, and he went to prison as a, as you know, a, a violent alcoholic and came out a heroin addict. Um, and he moved into like a flat, a bedsit. And the thing is when, 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 he, uh, when he came out, I remember in the buildup listening to my mum, speaking to her friends and speaking to like my nan, her mum and saying look, when he comes out, what am I gonna do? Because I don't want the kids to not have a dad and I just don't know if I should let them visit him in the flat what's the other option? The other option is that they don't have a dad at all and I don't want them to have a dad. And I'm listening, yeah? And because I become who the world needs me to be and I wanna make my mum happy and I found my place in the world by making my mum happy, I took from that, she wants us to have a good relationship with our dad and she wants us to go there and have a good time. So when he came out and he moved into the flat, we would go there and when we came home, I'd never tell her the truth. I'd always say, you know, we had a great time. Dad was really, really good. Um, because I wanted my mum to be okay, yeah? Uh, but we used to go there and he would get violently drunk and, and, and the flat, the flat was a drugs den and I used to, I used to see a lot of, I didn't know at the time, but people taking heroin and gouging out and passing out and my older brother was playing football a lot by then so it was just me and my younger brother that used to go and we'd be in this flat with him and often my mum would, there was a phone in there but you couldn't phone out on it because my dad never had no money. And my mum would ring it regularly and every now and then I'd say, look, dad's really drunk, you need to pick us up and my mum would pick us up out the front and take us home. Um, and she'd never come in, maybe because she didn't want to see 
what what was going on in there. You think she knew? Yeah, I mean, I used to say she didn't come in because if she did, there, there'd be like a violent argument. Mm. And I think there's some truth in that, but I think also the things that we do as human beings to protect ourselves can seem completely irrational when you look back on them. But I think she knew if she went in that flat, then she'd know the extent of what yeah, was happening. Mm -hmm. And, and so where she was, where you were going. Kind and of where thing. she was leaving, leaving us. You, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I don't want to interrupt you, but that that's really interesting, isn't it? That she, and it's the, the narrative that she's told herself, she would prefer not to see that and not to have the reality of knowing what's inside yeah and prefer to have almost ignorance as bliss as a mindset yeah and let you do yeah that. i will come on to i guess relationship with your mum in a bit but that's yeah. really interesting Sorry, no on. but it's true and i think as human beings we do that mm. and it's very easy to judge people for for why they do that but in any given situation we're born survivors right exactly, and there's a yeah. there's a huge difference between which we'll come on to as well and imagine between resilience and, and survival People say that children are naturally resilient. I wasn't naturally resilient. No. As children, we are, we're born to survive. Exactly. And resilience is a different thing. But as human beings, we do things to cope, yeah? And what was the other reality? The other reality was my mum went in there, she saw the flat, and then we don't have a dad. And then she has to make the decision that we don't get to go and see our dad anymore. Mm. And, and that's almost too hard to bear in itself. Um, so that was the way it was. And I mean, in some ways, that... that, that we were failed as children, me and my younger brother that went there. We were failed by them decisions. Mm. Um, but I don't put that on my mum. I just understand that there was... There different was a, situations. Yeah, there's different How was situations. that going into like, from obviously having that in your house, going into school? Did you have a massive mask when you went, well, like you, you spoke about? Yeah, well, w when my dad was still alive, because I realised that I could make people happy by being... Uh, I just desperately wanted to be liked, yeah? yeah. And I saw that I could alter my mum's state um, by the way that I was. So... At school, it meant that I was really likable, yeah? The yeah, teachers thought I was brilliant. All I cared about was other people mm. because I got my only happiness came in the world by, by how I made other people feel. Mm. So it makes me feel like, it makes me seem like a, a, an amazing person, but it's all a mask. And what yeah, that means is that when, when you're not being validated, when people aren't telling you how good you are or aren't telling you that you're funny, that you're not even alive because it's your whole character yeah so you speak about like now you also speak about obviously when you make your wife and stuff happy like even to this day now yeah you have that feeling of you know you're, you're giving it but when like i don't know do you blame yourself really like still now if like you know you come home or something your wife it could be a different scenario yeah 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 but do you still feel like it's your fault yeah it's hard for me to get away from that yeah, yeah it's hard for me when uh, i'm in the company of anybody that's not happy uh to not take full responsibility of from that yeah. and even uh you know knowing that intellectually doesn't doesn't necessarily change that no of course uh how does this story really quickly how does this then take you into your adult life so this 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 period of time um with your mum picking you up did you then did you not see your dad for a period of time or what how did that finish? no we would go back the next weekend we would go back um and this went on we used to visit we went this went on for like a year of going and visiting um and i would keep us there i would keep me and my little brother there for as long as i could until it got too much and then i would say you know we need to be picked up and there was one time when we'd gone there it was like a heat wave yeah so it was, it was boiling hot and my dad had taken us to a place called lydiard park which was near the flat and it's the place in swindon where everybody goes when it's hot yeah <laughs> like so it's like a big country park it's full of families and we were there middle of the day hundreds of families there and me and my little brother was there, my dad, and my dad's walking along, urinating, yeah? I don't mean wetting himself. He's walking along having a wee. He's acting all off his head, and he's got a big bottle of cider with him. 
And me and my little brother are like walking 10 yards in front of him there. And the two things that I remember feeling, the first thing I remember feeling is guilt, right? And it was guilt that I couldn't walk next to him in an act of defiance, yeah? I intuitively saw my dad's pain from a very young age. I saw the way that he drank and I knew there was something wrong. I knew he did it for a reason. Mm. I didn't understand the reason. Uh, I, you know, I didn't know the story behind it, but I intuitively knew there was something wrong with my dad. And when people looked at him in disgust, like the way that they did when he was acting like that, when they judged, when they looked with pity, uh, I felt like they 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 didn't understand. Yeah, you don't understand so what it's like. That's amazing that you, that you knew that. Yeah, and I intuitively knew that. People don't even no. at our age now. Mm. People will say, "Oh, he just drinks because he drinks." Well, yeah. there's a reason for the you yes. know people. There's exactly. a reason why people drink. There's a reason why people take drugs. Mm -hmm. mm. There's a people you know. There's always a reason. Well, it's yeah. the same with homeless people. People look at them and say, "I'm not giving you any money." Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. You know, you deserve to be. You know, you deserve to be in that situation. But you've done something in your life they to must, get that yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People already still assume that even mm. you know successful professional adults, they mm. still believe that. Yeah, and it's just amazing for you at such a young age to actually intuitively know that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but when you live with it, you see it. Yeah, you have to see it. I saw my dad wake up in the morning, and and I saw his pain. You know, I saw him in physical, emotional pain. But the guilt came because I couldn't, I wanted to be able, even at that young age, to walk next to him and, and explain that to mm. people and be like, you know, uh, my anger started to come out of me at that age. So I was starting to be like, you you know, if you if you want it, you come and have it with me as well as my dad, yeah? <laughs> even at nine years old, yeah? <laughs> uh, but the second thing that I felt was shame, right? And this, this is important because I wasn't ashamed of my dad. I was not ashamed of him. He was my hero. I saw his pain, like I said, uh, uh, and I wasn't ashamed of him. Shame says that I am bad, yeah? So I felt like there was something wrong with me. When people looked, I thought there was something wrong with me and it crippled me. And the way it made me feel physically, internally, made my whole body like want to shrivel up. And that manifested itself as anger. So that was the, the part of me that was like, you want it, let's have it, all of you. Right, I'll have it out with all of you now, yeah? Um, but you know, at that age, I didn't really know that. Um, but on this particular day, we went back and my dad was really erratic and he was taking um, drugs. I think they were prescription drugs. And we got back to the flat and I remember I said to him, like, Dad, you're, like, you're taking a lot of them things. And he was like, don't worry, don't worry. I'm just taking them. Uh, it's going to help me with my drinking, right? And when we got back, I remember we got back to the flat and I got my brother in the bedroom because I was like, he's going to die here. He's, gonna, he's going. And uh, he, he took all these tablets, uh, fell on the floor, had a seizure it's like foaming at the mouth and i remember watching him standing there watching him and i'm thinking i can't phone an ambulance because my mum will know that i've seen him die wow. so I, I just waited and then when i thought he was dead i thought he's dead and the truth is and it takes a lot of work to get to this place my first thought was like oh, taking a breath wow. like it's over it's over it's over for him it's over for us i don't have to go through this anymore and then I had to wait for the phone to ring so that I could say, dad's drunk again, you need to pick us up. And I don't know how long, I don't remember how long he's left in there, but the phone rang and I said, dad's drunk, you need to pick us up. And my mum must have heard the fear in my voice, like particularly on this occasion, because it was my nan that turned up very quickly and took us home. Uh, and we were taken out of school two days later to find out my dad had died. Um, and so you, you knew then, sorry, there was a period of time that you knew that your dad had died and you didn't know who was gonna find him and you carried that for two yeah, days. Yeah, I went I remember I was at school and then um we used to go to our friends straight after school and there was a message coming to our into the classroom and it was uh 
message for, for you know for Josh that you can't go to your friend's straight after school today. Your mum's picking you up. And my mum didn't drive at the time, so she picked us up in a taxi, and I knew. And in, in the taxi on the way home, my mum was upset, and I said, Dad's dead, isn't he? And she said, what? And I said nothing. I said I didn't say anything. And then when we got home, she told us that your, your dad's dead. Mm. And I thought he died well on that time. I found out this year, um, like I got the death records and death certificate and stuff like that, and he actually lived. So he must have come back round, uh, and he died the next day. Wow. In, um, hosp in hospital, yeah. No, he was found dead at a friend's, I think. Oh, okay. But that's how I kind of know that he didn't die in the flat because he was found at his friend's house dead the next day within like 36 hours of when I was there. But when he died, we went to see him in the, uh, we went to see him in a coffin, yeah? You like see him in a, and I remember stood around and, and I remember my mum and my mum saying, you know, this might be the best thing that's happened, the best thing that could happen for everyone. Your dad was in a lot of pain, he, you know, and he, it was causing the people that he loved the most a lot of pain and this helps to draw a line in the sand um, and everybody can move on and there doesn't have to be all this stuff in our life anymore. And that was true and it, and it made a lot of sense. Um, and then we had the funeral and then after that we never spoke about my dad again ever. Um, there's no pictures of him in the house. I didn't know when his birthday was. It was never brought up at all. Um, but when I went to senior school, it changed for me. That's when the anger started coming out yeah, and I started suffering terribly from anxiety and mm -hmm. I didn't know what anxiety was. And to give you like a quick demonstration of what school was like. In the playground, I'm loving life, yeah? Because I'm in control, right? I'm in control of the situation. I can be the clown. I can make everyone laugh. Everyone jokes. Josh, Josh is brilliant. He's quality. We go to class. It's all the same. When we get in there, I'm messing about. I'm in control of the situation. Everybody's paying attention to me. And then the teacher walks in and it's like, boom, now everybody shut up. Let's get on with the lesson. I go to walk to the back, right? I want to sit at the back of the class. The teacher knows why, because Josh is, wants to be naughty, so he wants to be far away from me. I didn't know it, but the truth was, is when I sit at the front, I've got 30 children behind me, there's noises going on, and they scare the hell out of me, and it makes me terribly anxious to sit at the front. So I want to sit at the back, because it makes me less anxious to have nobody behind me. But I don't know that, and I can't articulate that to, to anyone. Mm. So now I'm sat at the front, and now I'm anxious, and every bang takes me back to when I'm at home, and I'm picking apart what a bang is, and I'm listening to the noise, and I can't cope. So I'm turning around, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, get everybody's attention and get control of the situation and I can't because the teacher wants to teach a lesson, yeah? And so now I'm getting in trouble. Now the anxiety is really on me, but I don't know it and I don't know how to say it. So I just throw a chair and get thrown out and then I'm all right, wow. yeah? Because I'm out of the situation. It's that release, isn't it? That's a really interesting way of looking at that. Because I mean, I, just really quickly on that, how many kids Sorry. do we go to school with that mm -hmm. we were like, oh, he's a bit of a psycho. Like, they're just fucked. Yeah. 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 And you would never take into account what was going on that mm. led, and all of them, there's a correlation, and I think we were speaking about it before, between abusive parents and addiction, or between abusive parents and then that person having so many issues afterwards. It's childhood trauma, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it is. It's that massive yeah, link between childhood trauma to growing up to then being an adult. And yeah. Which, as you get older, you start to realise, like you said, like you realise it now that it was because you were anxiety. Like anxiety. Yeah. It was because you didn't, you heard that thud and, you, you know, it yeah, brought yeah. you back to the childhood trauma. Yeah. Which, um, yeah. So who did you become then after after school? This I mean, I imagine you didn't last too long at school. How, how long were you there for? I made it. I made it through school. I made it through school, there but I spent. Go. Uh, there you go. Shut uh, you down, mate. I spent. <laughs> I, but I spent the last two years in isolation, so I wasn't allowed in any classrooms. Yeah. Wow. Um, and the thing is, you, you always judge on your behaviour, right? Nobody ever asked me no, what happened to me. Nobody ever asked me the feelings behind it. Nobody ever said to me, in a nice, quiet, safe environment. Um, is, Josh, it, is it different now in schools now? Yeah, it's changing. Is it changing? It's changing, yeah. But not not in all of them. Like, you, you've got... 
it's not it's not completely changed, but it is changing. Because exactly the same when I was when I was at school, it was just because if you have you had the, det- the detention book. Remember that detention yeah, book yeah, you yeah. have, you like, mm-hmm. and whoever had the most detentions and stuff, you know, was uh, yeah. to some people quite cool. But there was never a reason for why he was getting detentions or why he's in isolation. There's no one to actually talk to in school. It was just. He's a little shit, basically. Yeah, and that's yeah, what that's all it was. Yeah, and yeah. Came with kudos because it was like if you're a little shit, you're disruptive, you're funny, and there are all the other things that come with that. Yeah, exactly. Most of the time, you did have the complete psychopaths. Yeah. Um, but I imagine you were somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So if you were you were in isolation, that must have been a painful because you're somebody I imagine that's quite extroverted and. In some ways it was, but then in other ways it was comfortable. Right. Yeah, because I'm in there on my own and I, like my I can deal with my anxiety on my own, and I was always like terrified of like people being able to see inside my head, and inside my head was a scary place. Mm. So when people said that I was arrogant and like just nuts and all that, I kind of like, I I liked that because I thought I was way worse than that. You know, I thought Mm. there was something terribly wrong with me. And the only help I ever really got when I was a kid, yeah, was being in a room with an adult, an adult saying, what's wrong with you? Come on, Josh, what's wrong with you? I I didn't know what's wrong with me at 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. But what I took from the question is that there's something wrong with me. Right. Yeah. Mm. So it's firm. So your language is important. Let's not get that twisted. Yeah. Nobody ever asked me what happened to you. Yeah, it was always right. what's wrong with you. Right. How'd yeah. you feel? Yeah. How'd mm. you feel? How'd yeah. you actually feel? Yeah, Josh, let's talk about uh, the run up to when you threw that chair. Yeah. You know, what, Why? What, yeah, you what know? was going on? What was, what was going on? on? Yeah. yeah. How did you feel physically? Mm. Oh, I couldn't, you know what I mean? Nobody ever let me mm. get curious about it's that. true. And, you say, and I think what's wrong with you is actually a real common term for, for adults speaking to children. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It does just make you feel like there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And then you kind of... The, the kids pick up on it as well. They're like, he's got something wrong with him. Yeah. And yeah, it's just self-fulfilling. Because of the language, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, school got worse for me, really, because, like, I just... Di- I didn't want to be an alcoholic like my dad, yeah? Right. That's all I want. I didn't care about anything else. So I just don't want to be an alcoholic like my dad. And uh, the thing was is that now my mum had my stepdad at home who gave us, you know, a safe environment and a good home and all the kind of things that you need within a family. He also accidentally took away the only role I had left in my life, which was making my mum happy. Because mm. now I wasn't the guy making my mum happy. Yeah? There was somebody else and I knew that. So I felt lost at home and I felt lost at school. And then so I'd stopped trusting adults completely. And then so rather than my peers, the people that I wanted to impress ultimately being my parents, I mean like children will go to school and try and impress their mates. But when they go home at night, it's the parents that they course, that, yeah. that they ultimately want to impress. I didn't have any of that, yeah? And I was naturally drawn to the escape that drink and drugs, that drink and drugs offered me. It was nothing to do with um, getting into the wrong crowd. I didn't fall into the wrong crowd. I went to that crowd. I saw what they were doing, and it looked like it worked. And I started smoking weed when I was 12. Drink quickly followed, and then I was using Class A drugs by the time I was 13. And I thank whoever it is that holds bearing over this world that I found alcohol and drugs because nobody else was giving me anything else and I don't reckon I would have made it through my teens without alcohol and drugs. Wow. Okay. They, they gave me the relief that I needed, that I craved. Uh, and alcohol and drugs were never, ever my problem, right? They were never, ever my problem. They were an attempt at a solution. My problem was the way that I faced the world without anything to alter my mind state. That was my problem. Drink and drugs altered my mind state enough for me to survive. And... I started selling drugs when I was 13. And what this was is like, when these boys turned these boys turned up in Swindon from London, gangsters turned up, yeah? And they were like 17, 18. In the BMW. Yeah, turned up in a white BMW. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. They just pulled out, of this, they pulled out of this bus lane, right? And I just jumped <laughs> that. But they, <laughs> right? But they, 
they were easy. I, I was easily manipulated by them because what they gave me was a feeling of being wanted. And I had an undying loyalty that I couldn't give to any other adult. And now they could manipulate that. So I started selling drugs, never really made any money in the early days or anything like that. But what I did is I had a sense of being loved and a sense of being wanted by these people. Mm -hmm. And I would have killed for them. I would have killed for them and I would have died for them. And our juvenile prisons are full of young, traumatized individuals who have been manipulated by someone to make money for them. And they've ended up in prison because they had an undying loyalty that should have been given to an adult and there was nobody available to take it off of them. Yeah. That's, that's, that's important. Amazing, yeah, that's yeah. important. And so then when I left school, I left school at like 16 and I got the grades and I remember going into school and they were like, ah, you know, you've done it. You've, I got like three A stars and yeah. uh, they're the only three I remember. R S P E. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've but, got two for PE. I was so fucking Yeah, good. yeah. But they, like, they, I remember them celebrating, you've done it, you got the grades, yeah. And they, they meant nothing, yeah, because my mental health was gone. It was shot by then. I was terribly suicidal, didn't want to be here. Like my suicidal thoughts started when I was 12, right? But it was just a valid option and a comfort to know that there was a way out. Right. I was never at risk of killing myself, but it was a comfort. But by the time I was 16, 17, I wanted to go. I desperately wanted to leave the world. And I was bad on drink and bad on drink and drugs by the time I was 17. Then I got into a relationship with who became my, she's now my ex-wife. And it was a toxic relationship. And um, I met her, she got pregnant very quickly. And I did what I was supposed to do. Got a job in a factory, got a house and got a car. Settled down, everybody told me how amazing I was doing. But behind the scenes, I had created exactly the same home that I'd grown up in. Mm. And people talk about learned behavior. It wasn't learned behavior. I wasn't stupid, right? I knew that what was going on was wrong. But I was suffering from exactly the same thing as my dad, which was untreated trauma, yeah? Right. I was suffering terribly from the ways that I felt. And I, 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 I went on a rampage, yeah? I, got, I was involved in football violence then, but when I was 18, same thing, top guy, was was an older guy who acted like a father figure who I would have died for. Mm. Um, and he made me feel wanted and needed and like I was a real, real man. And you know, I fed on that prestige stuff and on the weekends I would go out drinking and selling drugs and fighting. And uh, Monday to Friday I held this job down and I progressed in the job as well. But did I didn't want to be in here. The, in the skibbity football factory firm. Because you just sort of grew up in that. Skibbity. 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 I thought we was going into my drum and bass MC. Skibbity. I'm an MC. Zebedee. 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 Pete Dunham was another one. Can you identify with which one that you were? in the I can't really remember their I can't really remember their names. It was a similar setup though. Yeah, yeah, no, it was like that. It's yeah, like a family though, isn't it? A football, yeah. like, yeah. a football firm is your family. Yeah, you know, yeah. You're with them every every weekend. You, you yeah. talk about the week and stuff, and you actually trust them to speak about your whole week and how shit the whole yeah, week was. And yeah. You go out and you release that anger. Yeah. You're having that whole week to go mm. kick someone's fucking head in, basically. Did you yeah. Did you become an authoritative figure within that group at any point? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I got quite. I was quite. I was well respected, but because I was nuts, because I because I didn't care about living, so. Right. I was, I was, uh, the expression we would use is game as fuck, right? Mm. Uh, Josh's game as fuck, right? Because yeah. I'd have a scrap with anyone, uh, you know, and, that, and I lived for it because I had all this pent up emotion, yeah? Mm. Uh, as a, you know, a guy in my early 20s, uh, I was full of emotion that I'd never ever processed. I was angry, yeah? And I was willing to take a, a beating and I, I enjoyed getting beaten up um, just as much as I enjoyed having a fight. Um, 
but it was pitiful you know it wasn't like in football factory when it's all glamorous we you know you did get the you got a text message from an unknown number on a saturday morning and you'd get picked up from an unknown destination in the coach and all that but it was bravado and it was predominantly other men exactly like me that wanted to be part of something and didn't feel part of anything in yeah. any other part of their life uh, and I was in a really bad place. It was dark. I didn't, you know, I desperately didn't want to be here. Um, and it was on a football weekend when w the the serious suicide attempt came. Uh, we was away in Blackpool. And on the Saturday morning, I used to take a lot. So I took a lot of cocaine with me because I used to sell it uh, on the weekend as a, like a, a side hustle <laughs> from my job. Uh, and Just like Gary Vee. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's where I learned the game. I never made any money from it because uh, it just paid for my weekend. Um, but on the Saturday morning, early on the Saturday, I say early, like 11 o'clock on the Saturday morning, I was punched in the face and um, it snapped my jaw. It's, it snapped here, here. So two places on the right side. It fractured a third place on the left side and dislocated at the joint on the left side. So it's essentially... A punch. <laughs> yeah and I think it was more that I left just left my chin hanging out as well uh, I actually said go and give me your best shot to this guy wow and he gave <laughs> it to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and he nailed it yeah <laughs> but I just started drinking right so I didn't get an ambulance I called a taxi because I wanted to get some booze on the way because I thought I'm going to be up there a long time and I went up there I stopped got this bottle of vodka and by the time I got to the hospital, I couldn't get it in my mouth because my mouth was like all shut. And I was like, outside this, this is how Peter Phillip was. I was outside this hospital, pouring it all over my face, trying to get it to go in my mouth. And I went in and they rushed me in and they did an x-ray and they said, like, it's bad. Uh, you need emergency surgery today and we can't do it in Blackpool Hospital. So we need to get you to Preston Hospital. And they put me in a room and injected me with some morphine to, to deal with the pain. And then I was led on this bed waiting for the ambulance on my own. And I thought, if I take all this cocaine I've got on me now, it'll probably kill me with the with the morphine, yeah? Because mm. it's opposite, yeah? So I went in the toilet and I took it all. I put loads of it on my nose, couldn't get it all up my nose, so I was putting it in my mouth and washing it down with water. And I went and sat back on the bed and thought, I've done it. I was like, that'll kill me. And... Do you remember how you felt at that time? Very at peace. At peace? Yeah, it was, it was a very matter of fact. It was very like I've done it. In a similar way back to the moment you realized your dad had done it yeah well yeah 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 i was there i was in the moment and i remember getting in the ambulance and i was being really violently sick and i could see the terror like the the fear the terror and the worry and the paramedic that was sat in the back with me i could see he was concerned and then i remember i started really shaking and i started basically having like a seizure myself and then the next thing i woke up the next morning and they came in and it was like something happened last night and uh but we've done the surgery. They put all, like, my jaws got all metal plates inside it. Um, and they wanted to keep me in for, like, four or five days because they were concerned for my well-being. And when they left the room, I just left and went home. Got out, got the train home. Went and got eight cans of Strongbow and a straw. I needed the straw to get the drink yeah, down because wow, I couldn't yeah. open my mouth. Um, and I got the train home. And um, it was not long after that about six months after that, that I was sat in the pub on a Sunday. Um, and the landlord was an ex-footballer um, and he was a compulsive gambler. He didn't gamble on anymore. And uh, he had been talking to me. He, he, what he did is he inadvertently created a space, right, where I felt like I might be might be heard because he used to share his story. He won his first house playing a game of cards, lost his first house playing a game of cards. And the way he gambled was the way I drank. And um, he said to me one night, it was the, you know when Aguero scored the goal? 
to win Aguero. it. Aguero. Aguero, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I literally, yeah. every time I hear that, I remember I looked in the pub and I looked around and I thought, I'm done. I can't do this anymore, right? Yeah. And he said to me that night, do you think you've got a problem with drink? And for the first time with any purpose, I said, yeah. I said, I, I have. Bad. And um, the next day I woke up and I quit drinking and drugs and smoking and everything and never touched any of it again. Wow. Wow. Um, wow. Because you saw this guy struggle with yeah. gambling addiction and you've yeah. drawn the correlation between drinking yeah. and gambling. And it was over for me. I d it wasn't working anymore. It really? wasn't It wasn't working. I went to like 12-step fellowships as well. So I did like AA, oh, okay. and, like in the beginning as well. Um but the thing was for me is that uh, I didn't have time to get on. I've I, I spoken to you about this before, but mm. three months after I quit drinking, I got paid out £20,000 um, because I chopped my toes off in a machine at work. Uh, Josh has this brilliant mechanism in his shoe where he's missing his toes and he's cleverly put wedged <laughs> foam at the end so they don't curl up. Um, oh. <laughs> it still curls up a little it bit. It still curls <laughs> up a little bit. It's not quite there. Anyone that knows who can fix that would be uh, hugely appreciated. It would be, yeah, if you can make me some fake toes. You cut your toes off in a machine. Well, I was in a tail lift on a lorry, yeah. So right. you know like, when oh. a tail lift goes up oh. and meets a lorry, my foot was hanging over oh. the edge. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. That's the most traumatic part of the story. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's always my hangover. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, so the thing was, is uh, when I finished drinking, when I quit drinking, I was £17,000 in debt and I was living on a fold-out bed at my mum's house. And I was, wow. I was nine stone, which is five stone. Right and you'd broken up from your, with your, your yeah, ex-wife yeah, yeah, at yeah, this yeah. point. And I had four kids by then as well, by the way. <sighs> with, the, with your ex-wife? Yeah, with my ex-wife, yeah. And, uh, and this is, this is a, a, when, when you've given up drinking and drugs, you're, mm. you're nine stone at this point. Mm. And what are people saying to you? At this, are there, are you? Do you have friends in the same circles? Or? Yeah, well... Like it, uh, everyone was telling me how brilliant I was, and mm. I, the, the thing was, I, I thought it couldn't get any worse than hating myself and everybody hating me. But here I was, like now. So I got the twenty grand payout, set up in my own place again now. So now I've cleared all my debt. I'm mm. um, renting this house. My kids are coming on the weekend. I'm really struggling. My anxiety's back. All my feelings that I've been running away from all my life are there, real like tenfold. Because you can't numb them, and I can't. I've got nothing to numb them with, and I've never dealt with them. Mm. So I don't know what to do, and I'm I couldn't go shopping because the anxiety was on me. And everyone's saying, you're amazing. What an inspirational guy you are. Six months. Josh has stopped drinking for six months. And so now I'm a fraud. So now I hate myself and I'm a fraud. Because every time someone told me, I was like, it's not, I, I wanted to be like, it's not like that. You know, mm. I, I hate myself. I must be horrible because I hate my, my children when they come. I can't deal with them being there. It's too much. It's too hard. Um, and this is what shows me my problem wasn't drink. Yeah? My problem wasn't alcohol and drugs. My problem was me. My, it was a sobriety problem I had. Um, and I made a decision, nine, I was nine months sober, I made a decision I, that I didn't want to be here anymore, but not only that, that it was best for everybody around me if I left. I thought back to when we looked at my dad in the coffin and we all stood around and my mum said, this is the best thing for everybody. Wow. We can draw a line in the sand. And so I made what was a very honest and felt like a selfless and noble decision to draw a line in the sand for my kids and everybody's lives who I tainted with my existence. That's what I thought. Um, and I planned to take my own life and I was going to go and see my kids once more. And so I went for this weekend with my kids, but because I knew I was going to die, the past became irrelevant and the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever, when my daughter cuddled me, I felt it. Wow. Because you, because everything Cause else had gone. Because everything had moment. gone. I was in the present moment. My body wasn't that scary anymore. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't scary to actually attach to myself and wow. view the world as it is and be in the now. And I remember when... I watched my son go down the slide and he got to the bottom and he looked over at me, you know, to see that I was looking and I thought, fuck, he needs me. My boy needs me. Like he, and I felt that, like I would miss that 
I would have missed that in yeah, the past yeah, because I'm be too thinking. I'm too caught up in everything in that's going on in my head, yeah? yeah. And so in this moment, I changed my mind. In this weekend, I changed my mind. But more importantly, I recognized that what I suffered from was coming from inside my head. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't distinguish that it was that I'm present and I'm in the moment. I've done lots of reading and stuff since then. But I now know that that's what it was, yeah? yeah of course, yeah. And I found hope, yeah? I found some some hope for my life. And that's then when my life changed. And that's now where I've been on this journey in the previous like six and a half years of complete like obsession with learning about the ways that my mind works and how can I create that weekend the way that I was in that weekend? How can I create that in my life to give my life real meaning so that every every day or as many days as possible can be like that weekend? Wow. That, and that's been that's the journey that I've been on for the last six years now. Well, for, okay, thank firstly, you for sharing it. Yeah, thank you. That that is a I mean anybody that's listening, that is a completely heartfelt story and amazing to know that you're you're here today. Yeah. What okay, right. So I'm I want to go quite deep on this. We're you've you've had the realization that you're not going to kill yourself, mm. and you've had this um, almost like awakening moment or epiphany moment where you've gone, "These are my children. That's my um, purpose. I've got to provide support and help them." What steps? What are the first steps that you now take? But what what happens tomorrow? How do we now change and, and evolve? We're at the, we're at, we're at we're at the worst it can possibly get, but also the best it can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where next? I feel like you used you kind of used adversity, didn't you, for like personal growth as well, mate? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And here's the thing, right? So when you talk about resilience and mm. what we said earlier about being survivors, yeah. what I'd done all my life was survival. I was yeah. in survival technique, right? What I've done now and what I do now is work on myself. And, and take that adversity now and not survive, but look at how I can make it my strength. Yeah, exactly. So when you've been to the places, some of the places that I went, some of the gambles and the risks that I've taken in my life since then, you know, since I've been on the healing journey, when they feel like they're scary, I just say to myself, whatever the worst is, it ain't gonna be as bad as what it was. Yeah, 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 so then yeah exactly. So yeah. then it becomes like a real strength. Mm. But what I realize is everything starts from within us, yeah? The, the the things that hold us back come from in our minds, yeah? Mm. It's the story that we tell ourselves. Our story that we tell about us, tell ourselves is where everything originates from. And in that weekend, I talk about the fact that I found hope. People talk about hope all the time and, and it becomes a little bit of like a namby-pamby thing of like allowing people hope. But hope for me is the understanding that there is something better for me in this world, yeah? yeah? And so you can lose hope in a variety of ways. I lost it as a teenager when I was younger because I never believed that there was something better for me in the world, right? So I never chased anything. When 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 people offered me things and solutions to do, I didn't have hope. So what was the point? Because mm. I didn't, I could, like, you could offer me anything. And what's the point of me doing it? Because I don't believe there's something better for me out mm. there. And people can do that, by the way, by, by, by making their lives, like, too good for what they perceive. Because if you reach a point in your life where you think your life can't get much better, mm. then actually hope might go because hope is about believing there's believe something there's better something for you better, in yeah, life. Exactly. Yeah? Yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so hope is important, but it's been about self work on myself. So I was still working at the factory when I um, and I was transport progressed to transport manager. So I was going there like eight to twelve hours a day, and in them eight to twelve hours a day, I listened to seminars and podcasts, and I would sometimes listen to the same like hour and a half seminar over and over again for two mm. or three days so that I learned it and I understood what was going on with my body. I learned about trauma, I learned about addiction, I learned about all the different philosophies that encompass it and then I also went out and actioned. Every time I learned something that somebody said might work or that 
where some of my pain might have originated from. I went and looked at it. And still today, I have a thorough morning routine where I get up at half five every single morning. Uh, I go, that. Yeah, I go to the gym, do 40 minutes movement, and then I do 40 minutes quiet time. Some of that is like meditation, full on meditation. Some of yeah. it's like mindful stuff. And some of it is just spending like time um, loving myself yeah. and even so, so key that and it's so, so key. key and it's even like uh, I, I talk a lot about some of the smaller things within my morning routine I put a lot of like creams on my face in the morning right you can tell yeah. you look beautiful if by I, the way I, I know, right? this is a podcast. I know. it should yeah. be filmed yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's less about what it does to my skin and more about that time in the mirror looking myself looking in the eye thinking, yeah. looking myself in the eye because my body wasn't a safe place when I was growing up no. what I mean by that it was frightening so I dis disconnected from myself yeah. and I have to be comfortable in my body it has to feel like a safe place somewhere for me to go out in the world and, and be who I want to be and I need to be okay with that. So that time spent in the mirror is really, really important. And then I have, I have a, a Barocca vitamin drink. Yeah, yeah, I used to have Barocca. I like Barocca. I like yeah, yeah. Barocca. Every yeah. day is you, but on a really good day. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> that is amazing. There's the hat, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right? Right? It's Barocca, for yeah, fuck's sake. Yeah, right? yeah. But again, it's not really about what the vitamins do to me, but the fact that I'm putting it in the water and it's like, cheers to my body. Like, yeah. this yeah. one's for you. you know I'm looking I think, after you. I think... You have you being here today is so important to our listeners as well. Is because there's that famous quote from Michelangelo who says, "I saw uh, I saw an angel in a stone, but I carved it and set it free." Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you've done, mate. Yeah, and a lot of people get stuck mm. in their tragedy or whatever's gone through in their childhood trauma, no, no. Mm. and they never set that free. Yeah, I don't, you know, I think you've done that perfectly yeah. in, in the way in what you're doing now. Mm. Um, that is amazing that you've people. identified that because I think that's what I want to know. Because th what was the Six and a half years of learning, right? Mm. Amazing, and and six and twelve hours of podcast a day. But what is fucking hell? Like we were saying earlier when we hear about you know Hollywood stories, everyone were being reformed. But what was the first thing, or what was the what was the thing that made you resonate with yourself and go, oh my god, I need to look inside myself? Was there was there a particular podcast, or was there like a, a thing? It was uh, there were so many di different things that I was listening to. I mean, I walked into Nakoa at the right time because when I trained to be, when I walked into Nakoa, by the way, I walked in there twenty five. I was about six months after what had happened with my kids when I was gonna kill myself and I didn't. And I went in there, I didn't believe I was a child of an alcoholic, right? I didn't right. believe that my dad, there was a problem with my dad. I'd suppressed it that much. When I walked into Nakoa, I said, oh, I'm just here to volunteer. My dad used to drink a bit, but there was food on the table. It weren't that bad. Mm -hmm. Then I did the training and it was like, oh my life, this yeah. is what's wrong. This is, mm -hmm. it's here, right? I've been running away from it. I've been hiding it. I've been lying to myself. I've been telling myself this stuff to cope and it's not the reality, yeah? So for me, in any self-building stuff, you have to start with validation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the biggest mistake that we make. Um, validation. Yeah, what va do you mean by that? Because, so validation is, uh, you have to start at the, at the problem, yeah, and, 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 and the way that it's really making you feel. Because what you have a tendency to do with the whole mental health chat, right, that goes on, is it's all about, there's something wrong with you and we need to make it right. It's all them people over there that struggle with their mental health. We need yeah, to make them better, yeah? yeah? And it's all like, uh, what can we do to get you out of where you are? We go, we're always trying to pull people out of their darkness, right? right. Rather than going into their darkness and sitting sit a while and, and asking what's wrong here, yeah? 
Well, so you actually you do the opposite to everybody else, where it's like, right, I'm going to do things that make me happy. You go, right, I feel, I feel like shit. I'm going to not wallow, but sit in this and experience what it is. Yeah, what's your body telling you when yeah. when there's something wrong with you? Your body's trying to tell you something. Because you spoke, you also spoke. I know you spoke about people outsourcing help, people mm. going to other people for help. When in fact, actually, like you said, you look in the mirror, you learn to love yourself. Yeah, is that is that's so important first. Yeah, before you seek help, is actually seek help for yourself. Exactly within yourself. Exactly, and find the rock. You gotta find the rot, yeah? yeah. If so, like metaphorically speaking, right? If you had a, a piece of rotten fish in this room, right? Yeah, yeah. The way to get rid of that it's would not pooch. be to just bring in, <laughs> not bring, yeah, yeah, Would not be if you could bring in all the nice stuff in the world, yeah, mm. and you might be able to focus on it for a while, but mm. in the end, yeah, that rotten fish is just gonna get too much. It's always wow. gonna come back, and it's gonna it? overcome everything else yeah. in the room, yeah. So until you deal with that, right? Or at least pay attention. At least know that it's there. I'm yeah. not saying that before you bring good into your life, you need to completely solve the bad. Yeah, cool. But you need to sit with it each time. So every day you need to think to yourself, I need to sort that fish, yeah? Wow. Even if it's taking small bits out at a time or whatever, you've got to deal with it. Because yeah. if you don't, it will uh, it will overpower. When, and, and, and suppressed emotions, mm. even if they're suppressed by positivity, yeah, right? It's still a suppressed emotion. It's, you're still suppressing exactly. it. Exactly. I think I, I, I do it myself. Is you know, I spoke Same. to you I spoke to you the other day. I went to a holistic healer. Yeah. And he sort of told me the things I had in the past. And I've suppressed it for so long. Mm. And I never knew until I spoke to this guy. And he told me all these things that happened when I was 14, 16. And I was like, oh, wow, that is why it's affected me now. And this is yeah. why I, ha I am what I am now. Yeah. And you don't even realize subconsciously, you sort of, it's called like, the, he calls it a, 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 a wall around your heart, basically. So like a mm. wall heart. And you just, you layer it and layer it and layer yeah. it and layer it and layer it. And like you said, it's until you literally go to the core yeah. and you find out why, what the fuck happened is yeah. when you can actually really, truly. How, and how do you get to that? Because I, I personally... Um, I have these moments, you know, these moments on a monthly basis or whatever, where I'll just be in a bit of a darker place, and I can't. I have, I'll wake up the next day and it's kind of gone, mm. and I'll think to myself, "What was that? What was that feeling?" And I'll be like, oh, "It must have been that." And I'll make the assumption that it was X, and I'll go, "Okay, well, that's that." Is there any other? Is there a particular set of questions, or is there a thing that you can ask yourself to get to that that thing? To well, your belief what is, it is your belief is freedom within, right? Yeah, freedom from within. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, I fully believe that. Yeah, yeah. that when. The thing is, is we quite often only unpack the sadness the mm. day after, yeah? So, but when you're in it, right? I think you need to, I think people need to go into it. I yeah. go into it. When I'm struggling, I go into it. And this is the mistake we make with the with, with mental health. When you talk to somebody who's struggling, yeah? If you're with someone, if, if, if your friend comes to you and they say, like, uh, you know, I'm really um, struggling at the moment. I feel like I don't want to be here, right? What do you say? The first thing people say is, Oh come on! You, you, there's loads of reasons to be alive. Like, think of that thing you're doing next week, and like, yeah. you're so good at this. Da, da, da. Yes. And boom! Firstly, by the way, you've not validated the way they feel. No. Right? Yeah. Okay. And the reason we do that, right? One, because we're good people and we want to help others, right? Mm. But the second one, and more importantly, is because we don't like the energy that it brings to the table, yes. and we we can't deal with it ourselves. Yeah. So when you come to me and say you you want to die, right? That makes me feel really bad. And so I want to change the energy of the room for mm. me, not for you. I don't care about you. No, I'm like, no, come on. Yeah. Like, it's all right. You're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Because I can't cope with the pain, right? Yeah. Rather than going, okay, well, that must be really, really hard. And how does that feel? Yeah. You start getting curious about it. Yes. And when, when, when we always try to intellectualize stuff, right? So when I'm starting to feel bad about something and I'm having a day where I feel down and they come, mm. right? I start getting curious about it. And it doesn't have to be an intellectual thing. It can start being like, where where am I feeling this, right? 
So if I'm feeling guilty, or often if I'm worried about like my relationship, something in my marriage, right? It's in my stomach. Yeah. And when I start to think about it, everybody knows about gut feeling. It's not called gut feeling for no reason. It's because no. there's a feeling in your gut, yeah? What about my shoulders? Are my shoulders up by my neck, right? Because I'm tense and I'm like stressed about something and it's all on top and I've got a bit of a headache. Then all of a sudden I'm being curious about all the physical sensations, which nobody talks about in mental health, right? Mm. Nobody talks about like the real physical feelings and everything manifests itself physically within you when you're struggling with something. In your head, in your chest, in your stomach, yeah, your shaky arms and things like that. And I, I hear it all the time, people saying, oh, you know, I'm trying to cut my sugar down because I keep getting all a little bit like, like a bit shaky during the day. And I think I bet it's not, it might have something to do with sugar, yeah. but I bet it, that's anxiety, right? But yes. nobody, mm. nobody talks about it, especially not men, right? You, no, you don't get anxious, right? So you have to be curious about it and start to accept it for where it is. And I say, rid yourself of the idea that there's positive and negative emotions, right? There isn't any positive and negative emotions. Mm. There's just emotions, right? And they're trying to tell you something, right? And it's the fight against the idea that you shouldn't be feeling it that causes you the most problem. So when you start to feel anxious, what people would do is like, you know, you get the feeling in your chest, right? And then you can't stop thinking about that thing that you've got to do tomorrow. And then you don't want to feel like it. So I'm not going to feel like this. I need to stop being anxious. Don't want to feel like it's going to be okay tomorrow. I'm not going to be wearing All of a sudden, yeah, you're, you're, you're on a path, right? And you're gone. You're not in control. Yes. Wherever, if you get curious and the moment you feel anxious, it's more you, you take the stance of, okay, I'm feeling anxious now. Where am I feeling this? Okay, it's in my chest. It's in my arms. What? Where? Where is it coming from? What am I concerned about? Oh, I got that thing tomorrow. Th th that subtle shift, yeah, changes who's in control. Yeah, yeah. That's you an start amazing. Being in, yeah, you start. You, that is an amazing control. piece of it. Like, I, I actually, I really feel that advice as well because yeah. there's so many times that you put it off, and tomorrow I wake up and I feel better. Yeah, and certainly you just think of all the reasons why you shouldn't be anxious. I, I had a, I had a routine when I, if I was felt particularly anxious or nervous or, or sad, mm. I would write down all the, all the good things, right? So mm. what I'm doing is the opposite of what you're advising. I'm just going, okay, bad things, what are the good things? Yeah. Whereas you're saying the opposite, it should be, well, let's identify what's causing the bad thing. Yeah. Which questions can I ask myself? So they can be anything from, you know, is it that thing or is it, you start almost doing a bit of a multiple choice process to yeah. understand the depth and the root of the anxiety. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, that, that I think, <clears throat> excuse me, because you hear so many of these podcasts or conversations around, you know, being positive. It's so nice to hear a raw identification process to get to the depth of that I think problem. that's what our listeners want as well. Yeah. I think that's what they need. Well, yeah. Is that, and <clears throat> did you discover that quickly or did you kind of have to, throughout lots of learning, discover, okay, this is Yeah, I mean, step. it's been a process, right? It's been, a long process and at the beginning when I was first like doing the, the routine in the morning I had some really like difficult times with myself in the morning um right. I would be like rattling shaking you know like going back to the flat when I was younger and really processing the grief and the um looking from an abject perspective of at the things that happened to me not for blame but for understanding of how they've impacted my life has been hugely hugely important so I had and 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 it's still a process, yeah? I lost my dad. Um, I don't have a dad. I've never felt the love of a older man, as yeah. in, uh, you know, right? And that's that's important because I don't know what that feels like. So it makes, I have difficult relationships with men. I don't know how to get close to men in a healthy way. And learning all that stuff is hugely important, but it's not something that we talk about. We only, even now, yeah, when mental health is like huge and everyone's talking about it, we only ever talk about champions, yeah? Yes. You only ever talk about the people that have come through the mire, that are through yeah. the other side, yeah? We don't, 
we need to build the real strength is when you're in it mm. yeah that's that's the real strength and when i was doing this stuff in the morning and going through this pain i had to start timing it because i i needed to tell my mind that i'm unpacking this right and that when the timer goes off it's over so i don't you know there is an end so that if you imagine your mind is like a library of thoughts yeah it's all like all the books of thoughts yeah when i first started everything was on the floor and i needed to go in my library for 20 minutes each day pick up the books look at them validate them and then put them in put them back yeah and then i managed to get it back to where it was pretty tidy and then life gets it messy and every morning i go in there and sort it out yeah yeah that then becomes the foundation for when you get positive things in your life yeah when these things do come into your life there's space for you to take them on yeah because you get to show up as your most authentic self because you're not hiding anything. The moment you're hiding stuff, even when you're hiding it from yourself, you can't turn up as the most authentic person because you're you're hiding stuff. So you're never bringing your full self still to the table. Still living behind a so, mask, aren't yeah. you? How, how, are you, how do you stop hiding something from yourself? So is that you writing it down on a piece of paper or just you acknowledging yeah, your that, anxieties? How, how do you do that? What is the process of that? The, it's that, that, that 20 minutes that I spend every morning sp sitting with myself, completely objectively and learning real realities about who i am yeah so you've got you've got to be really really thorough with yourself and i mean really really open to to go in the power of habit taking. isn't it the power of habit yeah. i think is so important yeah yeah it's yeah. a direct link to that I yeah believe, anyway so how do you then habitualize this process do you think what would you how would you kind of put this well, into you, your you've got to understand the importance of it you, the, the problem with routine is yeah you've got to do it routinely for it to work yeah right? exactly you yeah. can do it for two weeks and you go and do it for two, yeah go and right. do it for two weeks and come back and tell me it don't work you haven't done it yeah right yeah. you haven't done it <laughs> yeah I, I, someone said to me about a, a sleep thing yeah said uh oh there's been this new the navy seals have come up with this thing that cures um uh insomnia and it's in, if you do it for six months it cures it 93 percent of the time and i was like yeah, but if you do anything for six months yeah, it'll like work anything, 90 exactly. something percent no, of the time yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like diet right if you do a diet for six months it yeah. will work 100 yeah. percent of we the time right yeah. week, the yeah. problem is doing it doing yeah? it exactly yes. doing yeah. it yeah and then so i was i was motivated by not wanting to go back to where i was mm -hmm. and i was also motivated by change i wanted change in my life and I started to really, really believe in the in the man that I was becoming, and I and I knew there was more for me in life. So I got on the routine. And don't get me wrong, the first two years of doing it, it was like a series of doing it, it working, having a positive impact on my life, then dropping it, then not really realizing why things were going off key, and then bringing it back, and then dropping it, and then realizing, hang on a minute, this routine is having like such a huge impact on my life. And now I bring it back, and it's as important as like you know anything in my life you know it's the, i make it the central part and it also means when i go off key even if i don't know it because i'm so thorough in my routine and my routine is of healing nature and is about me i am automatically working on myself every single day for a a, a good period of time in the morning mm -hmm. and everything that i do in my work life today comes from like in that next two hours really i get some of my best works done by like half eight nine in the morning because yeah. it comes straight after that routine do you have any tips for people in getting started with a routine? Like, how do you go about setting a routine for you that works for you? Is, I, it, is it like with yours? You said you wake up at five thirty, then you have, uh, I think you said an hour, 
meditation? If I do 40 minutes movement yeah. and then f- oh, yeah. like 20 minutes mindfulness. So did you go straight in, I'm going to do it like that, or did you add like block by block? So for the first, yeah, how, how do you... Yeah, it, it evolved, it evolved right. for sure. And originally I'm doing like two minutes in the morning of mindfulness because that's all I could do before my head just went. And then so you have to build it. So it does, like it has to be, it has to be manageable and not seem like a mountain to climb. But I think if you can start with some kind of route... Even if it's like getting up, going down and having a coffee and looking out the window yeah. for five minutes, right? Could be anything. Medita- meditation yeah. could be anything. Medi- I know yeah. people... I'm, I'm walking walk, my dog. Walking I the use, dogs, yeah. I use yeah. that as meditation. Huge, yeah, bring yeah. my phone. Huge, Just yeah. me in the woods and the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, really calming, that, isn't it? For <laughs> oh, fuck's sake, Fenton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, putting a bag over your hand yeah, and then picking up the shit. Cheers, mate, you Yeah, yeah, yeah. It keeps you humble, right? It's a good point, though, because meditation... A lot of people assume to sit there. It's sit there in lotus position. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. but yeah. meditation is essentially giving yourself time exactly. and allowing you to process your thoughts. I believe it's exactly that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't sit in the lotus position. And sometimes it, w- it, it won't look like meditation to to even me when I'm doing it. But there's that 20 minutes where, uh, and sometimes I don't get anything out of it. You know, the 20 minutes is all. It feels like a bit, bit of a waste of time. Because I think that's important because I think people that do or that try meditate, they always seem to think that they need something out of it. Mm. But not every meditation, you know, like you said, not every meditation. Yeah, is yeah, perfect. and you don't do it and then float home. No, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like when it, it's like when you train your muscles at the gym. Yeah, you start off, there's no muscles there. And then all of a sudden, after like three months, you look back at a picture three months ago and you think, cool, I have changed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, do, you, you, you don't necessarily notice it. Mm. Um, is there, because I think one of the guys we're going to get on um, will be focused on meditation as well, but is there a particular, because we, Ian and I had a very weird experience in, um, in Vedic meditation. And I'm not sure if it landed with us because the guy, brilliant guy, um, he recommended that we did 20 minutes at the, the beginning of the day and 20 at the end, a complete mantra silenced. Uh, meditation and you repeat a noise unique to yourself mine sounded like babinga 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 <laughs> yeah right, you're not okay. supposed to no no that. i said it sounds like i know I, 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 i've never said what it actually was but it so, sounds like that so i, I, I would sit for two for 20 minutes right you know i both did we used to live together and i'll be there in my head going babinga babinga and before you know i'm thinking about i don't know sex or probably not no sex actually is what i was thinking about <laughs> <laughs> you fucking single loser um or you know and then your, your mind sort of wanders away that was too much. I was trying to focus my, you know, my time on something for too long. It became annoying. It was a burden. How would you recommend to somebody that knows a bit about meditation, probably hasn't done it that successfully, maybe has given it a go once or twice, but how would you start? A guided meditation. Go right. on YouTube and look at, there's uh, the Honest Guys on YouTube are okay. really, really good. They do like short three to four, five minutes guided stuff. Brilliant. And then, so you're listening to them and you're following what they say. Mm. Uh, and I did that for for a while at the beginning. Still do every now and then. If I'm yeah. feeling particularly out of sorts, I'll go guided and it and it, it helps to refocus me. Yeah. What have you moved into now? Away, but now you're away from guided. Uh, sounds or silence. So there's certain like uh, there's one called the Devi prayer that I listen to that really resonates with mm. me at the moment. But it changes. Um, well, sounds, sounds and vibrations. I think we'll, they want that maybe in another mm. podcast. But I think they're so so. I sleep with sounds sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know that vibration stuff. Yeah. If you actually do it yourself, you can actually feel the vibrations. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. It's so insane. it's so good, mate. Yeah. It's in yoga, isn't it? I mean, that's why you make the om and the noises. Yeah. So, uh, but then some people say that Chakras. you know you're more visually connected to uh, meditation, or you're more orally, or you know, from yeah. or whatever. Some some are touch. You know, some people are you know yeah. to touch things or to hold your fingers like that. Yeah. I I think personally, I'm similar to you. Sounds. What yeah. one person said to me once: listen to the furthest noise that you can hear, 
or the quietest noise that you can hear in the room. Right. <laughs> and I was in, I used to be in a flat in Clapham and I used to hear um, like traffic, but it, I knew that the roads I was hearing it from were quite far away. Yeah. That helped me quite a lot because I was mm. focusing my attention on this thing that's far away. Yeah. Um, um, oh yeah, sorry, we got into meditation, didn't we? No, yeah. So you're now a life coach, right? Yeah. I was just wondering, with your clients, the people you work with, um, obviously client discrepancy and all that, but are they a complete mix? So is it people that are, I don't know, entrepreneurs that you're working with or you're mm. working with people that are hating their jobs? or is it, is it, I, d I don't know how to, what my question is, but I'm just intrigued to know a little bit about the kind of clients. Yeah, it's a mix. With. It's a mix, right. yeah. So I've got like, I do some like more mentoring stuff where I have regular contact with people that have come through like severe mental health and addiction problems. But then I also work in like a uh, evoking change, resilience kind of working with entre entrepreneurs and people within the corporate yeah. world who, you know, who really take it into their business. Um, and what, what sort of practices do you use with those guys? Would it be a group of people? Would it be a group of four or how does it No, work? I do. I do some group stuff, but may it's mainly one-on-one. -on -one. The coaching is mainly one-on-one -on -one at the moment. Um, and I use the coactive model of coaching, so it's very about about you and understanding that people are naturally resourceful and whole as they you know as they show up to the game. So um, it's about basically helping them to focus within themselves to see what they need to do to change. Which because because that's what I done. I mean, we haven't even spoke about how I got into setting up the business. No, I didn't. Sorry, take me through that by the oh, way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, have we got time? Yeah, 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 yeah of course we have. So. How long we got? Yeah, we got. Yeah, yeah. we can squeeze well, it through. Yeah? Go, yeah. So basically, I'm going to run through it, right? Because it's a good story. What? So at the back end of last year, I was still transport manager, right? And I couldn't get out of there because of the money I was on. I was unskilled, unqualified in anything else. I had been shoehorned into this job. Uh, I had it. I've got six children now, a mortgage, two cars, and there was just no way I was going to be able to find a job that was going to be able to pay for me to move. But I was desperately, desperately um, upset and, and really struggling in the job that I was in. Last year, I found a job as a prison officer, right? And it felt like it was going to be the only way out and the only way to work with helping people, right? And I applied for the job, got the interview. Then I went out to go and do this, like, training thing. Uh, and I got the job in November. And I was supposed to start in February. And I left my job in December to go home for Christmas, thinking to myself, when I go back in January, I'm handing my notice in and I'm leaving, right? And I'm going to be working with vulnerable people at least, which is, like, it would be a good thing. Between Christmas and New Year, they wrote to me and said, uh, and I'd ordered the uniform and everything. They said, we've had your criminal record checks back and you can't work in a prison, right? Because oh, uh, the violence and all that kind of stuff on that. So then I went back to work in January and I was devastated. And I just said to my wife, I'd been doing a lot of like media work um, in like TV and stuff like that, mainly with the charity Nakoa, but then kind of just like based on my story. And I said to my wife, right, this year I leave my job um, and I move fully into my purpose doing what I love. Uh, and she was like, okay, what's that going to be doing? And I was like, I don't know, but it's going to happen this year. And I said, and I don't want you to question it. We're going to talk as if it's happening. And uh, I put stuff up all around the house saying uh, I'm moving in my purpose, working for myself, uh, doing what I love. And it was all around the house. I text my wife every day when I got to work saying I can't wait to leave this job at the end of the year. And she would be like, yeah, I can't wait either. Um, like, is it every day? Yeah. She got that every day. All the time, every morning. I text her every single morning, every That's single amazing. morning. She right? reply, but yeah, I can't wait either. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And we would have conversations. <laughs> We'd have conversations at home, right? You know, like we'd be like, "Oh, Christmas this year, what are we gonna do?" And I'd be like, "Wow, just think, I'm not gonna be working at White's." Well, and fake it till you make it, right? Basically. Literally, so literally, thing, had no idea, right? Did a talk in February. Um, got asked for the first time to go and do a talk paid after that. So that was like, all right, but I would have needed like 10, 15 of them a month. So it was never gonna happen. Um, 
Then in March, I'm going to bed uh, and I get a message from a woman in Australia. She says, I think you're my cousin. And I was like, well, she had a different surname. She was like, look, my brother lives in England and he'd like to speak to you because uh, he's seen you on the news and he's pretty sure that you're our cousin. So I spoke to him the next day. He had the same surname and he, it turns out his dad was my dad's brother wow. and he was my cousin, yeah? So I went and met him. Um, he is like owns a big marketing company um, and he was like, so what do you do? And I was like, oh, well, I just like do a lot of public speaking. Um, and he's like, oh, so do you, like you full time? And I was like, no, no, no. But by the end of the year, I'm leaving my job. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know, but it's definitely happening by the end of the year. And he was like, text with my girlfriend. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was literally like that. And he was like, well, look, I'll let you, he worked with a coach. And then he said, well, uh, he spoke to his coach and his coach said, I'll give you a few hours of my time, right? So I went and met him in London and told him everything, was with him for like four or five hours. And then he was like, look, we're going to change this. We'll we'll get you we'll get you doing what you love um and so then i the next month i enrolled on the, to do the coactive training um the the initial thing of that and then in august i set up my website and then it got to september and i'd ran out of holiday from work and i couldn't take any more holiday and i had enough money i had enough work lined up to pay for about half of september and then with savings maybe we could have got through till like october november and i said to my wife i'm handing my nose in uh and I don't know what we're going to do, but I'll make it work. And handed it in and it just like skyrocketed straight away the moment I had handed my notice in. And really? that's when I started doing the resilience workshops and done that with some like uh, global companies already. And, uh, you know, I'm coaching very, very uh, coaching. I've got lots of coaching clients and um, do lots of public speaking. And a lot, I've got lots of stuff in the pipeline for next year. So it's just yeah, been amazing. amazing. You, see, you, see, you see how like, you quit your job that obviously yeah. you didn't want to be in. Mm. You found your purpose mm. and things just skyrocketed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's what people are scared of. Yeah. You know I mean, people are actually scared of to go and quitting their job because they're, yeah. un they're scared of the unknown. Yeah, mm. yeah. At, yeah. At what stage do you realize what your purpose was? I guess this year, I always knew my purpose was to use my experience of what had happened to me to influence the way okay. other people live their life, yeah. And I've always wanted to touch as many people as I can with that, I, like I've had to do a lot of work this year around my value uh, and learning that there's value in what I've learned because I used to think because I taught myself all of it and I'd never had any therapy or done like, any training, I thought it devalued who I was. Um, so I've had to learn that um, there's power in what I do and value myself in that. I had to develop a relationship with money. I always had a bit of a weird relationship with money uh, and taking money for, uh, you know, doing what I do. And part of the change from leaving my job into where I am now has been to um, have healthy attachment relationship with money. So what I mean by that is uh, because I'm doing what I love, yeah, uh, I have a firm belief that the money will come. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're in a relationship with, if you imagine a relationship you have with a woman, yeah, yeah. when you're in a relationship with a woman, the best, help, most healthy relationship is to be the best version of yourself and she will love you for that. For yeah, that, exactly. And, and the single people out there, be the best person of yourself and they'll come along. <laughs> they'll find us. Yeah. 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 That's it. I'm with you there, mate. I'm with you. Yeah, with the, with the frog in his throat. I'll see you soon. Yeah. <laughs> Christmas is coming and we're all alone. Yeah. All I want for Christmas is a girlfriend. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop there. <laughs> so um, with, uh, with purpose, so for anyone that's sitting in a, a job, because I was one of these people that didn't enjoy it, 
and often I mean at, at that stage I was thinking okay yeah purpose purpose I need to find my purpose what advice do you have for people out there that are sitting in jobs and working for people that they don't want to be working for yeah yeah uh, to then make a positive change in their life to find their purpose and to do work that makes them happy so one of the things I think is uh to go out and kind of discover yourself in different ways. Now, whether that means you do some kind of like crazy fundraiser for a charity or you go and look to support a charity in some way, that was really, really huge for me. When I first started doing all the work with Nakoa, uh, I wanted to just like find myself. And I remember saying to my wife at the time when I went to do it, like, I'm doing this because I wanna discover things about myself and I'm gonna put myself in uh, places that have real meaning to me. Mm. And then so I was offering my time voluntary and making no money for it, but what I was gaining for myself, yeah, by giving to the world in that way, was I was learning about who I was and what makes me tick, do you know what I mean? So um, you have to kind of be willing to put yourself out there in, in, in that, for me anyway that's what worked for me was putting myself do you think there. giving so you say like give a lot of people say giving is their main re you know when they when they when they learn to give and they, they learn that feeling of when they give someone something or it could be you know advice or anything i think that's the best feeling do you think that's like paid a massive role into what you do now yeah you're yeah. helping other people by giving you know advice of what you went through and stuff yeah yeah and i'm driven by that i'm driven by what i can do for other people um but or and the starting point of that is how I feel about myself though um, and recognizing my value. And I say that because for a long time I hid behind humility mm. and it's very, very, it's, that's something that's very easy to do, which was like when I used to say, I don't care about money, I don't want a nice house or anything like that, I just wanna help people, right? That sounds like an amazing thing to say, but actually it came from a place of less than with me. It was mm. because I didn't believe I deserved good things in life. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah, so and so I hid behind this tactic of being like a Mother Teresa type yeah. figure who don't care about money and a house and all yeah. that stuff. When the reality is now that I found my value, I do. Yeah, I, I do care about that. I want nice things for me mm. and I want nice things for my family, right? And, I, and, and that's because I value myself as a person. And, and in doing that, it means I'm able to go out and give to the world in the way that I've that I really want to you know mm -hmm. behind my why yeah you really need to give to yourself first before you can give other people your best self I yeah, that, yeah. Well, I had that so. quote actually I think this is this is says, before giving the mind of the giver is happy whilst giving the mind of the giver is made peaceful and having given the mind of the giver is uplifted yeah Which I think do you know what I mean yeah 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 <laughs> Okay, do you know what I mean? Is that what we said at the end? Quote, unquote. That comes from a mate who's a Buddhist, by the way. Yeah, that, that's how you, you put a quote in layman's terms. Do you know terms. what he means? Yeah, <laughs> do you know what he means? <laughs> you know yeah. what he means? <laughs> do you know what he means? Is that but Buddha that, with an A? <laughs> I think that literally goes to what you were saying just yeah. then about sure. be, having it good, having obviously being inside. Yeah, and that's why all that stuff in the morning is so important, yeah? Because if I want to go out and give to the world, then I've got to, I've got to have something to give. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's amazing. I'm just doing a quick time check. We have got one hour and 15 minutes on the clock on here wow, brilliant but we yeah yeah that that's um that's our sort of parting question which i know is always quite a, a loaded oh, question part, yeah, it was sort um of, okay sort well, well i'm gonna part with a few questions then um anybody in a pithy line that we use it's a word um 
I guess anybody going through, we, we want to speak to people that are going through the, the daily struggles, right? So if you could give advice or if you're in a room with a loudspeaker and you had lots of people going through daily struggles, what what is the first bit of advice you would give to that person or even the first step they should take? The first the first bit of advice that I would give is that validation, yeah? Okay, okay so I would... Uh, I would always go and meet people where they're at, right? And not start trying to drag. And if if you're going through a hard time and it and it feels really really difficult, it might be that you need a little bit of time in that place. Mm. And so people always talk about, you know, the the first bit of advice everyone gives is you should talk, yeah, go and talk. Mm. But that's a judgment in itself, right? If I say to you you should talk about the ways that you feel, that's me saying I know what's wrong with you and I know what's right for you. Yeah, and I don't know what's wrong for you and I don't know what's right for you. So uh, for me, it's about meeting people where they're at. I say stepping into their darkness and sitting for a while. And another metaphor I use about how Nakoa helped me is life. when life feels like you're on like a sinking ship, and it felt like that for me for a long time, yeah, and I'm just trying to empty the water out and I'm just keeping my head just above the water and I'm just emptying this water out with a bucket, yeah, that's what my life is. The way we tackle mental health in general, in a general sense, is we'll come in, we'll see the boats going off course, and Josh needs help, let the boat sink in, and we'll go up and steer the ship back on course, right? Mm -hmm. And whoever does that gets to go away and say, look, I've helped Josh, he's back on track, right? But my experience through that whole time of getting back on track and then being back on track doesn't change because I'm still emptying the water out of the ship to make sure it doesn't sink, right? When you, to really, really help people, you need to go in and grab a bucket and start emptying the water for them and let the me go up and steer. And I might steer it off course and it might take me a little bit longer to get it back on course. But when it does, I'll be empowered because it will be me that's learned how to do it. Yeah. And that's how you should support people properly. When, you're, when your need to fix somebody gets in the way of your want to support them, then you're failing. Does that make sense? Oh, that's yeah, really that's good. Fucking goosebumps. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's, that yeah, really yeah. that resonated with me. Write that, that one down. We have we have a lot of um, well, everyone has a lot of friends that go through tough times, and I think we're always caught in between a place where we're like, I want to fix them, but I also want to help them lean into that problem. Which which where do I start with helping that person? Yeah, yeah. And actually, that might be an important question. When somebody comes to you and they've given you the the vulnerability or luxury of of knowing that they're not in a good place, yeah, what's the first question you ask them? I, I would set them up to get curious about 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 it so okay. that they can really spend some time and feel empowered over it. You know that shift we spoke about earlier of uh, I, the most obvious one to use is anxiety. Yeah. When, when you change the shift of, if someone's in a dark place, it's easy to start being like, oh no, you shouldn't be here. We really need to get you out of it. Come on, oh, no, what can we do? Mm. What can we do? And that's all actually quite negative connotation of everything's really, really bad and we need to try and get you out. When you go in and meet somebody and say, let's get curious about this, let's explore the ways that you're feeling, maybe what's what's your body and what's your mind trying to tell you and don't give them the answers, just sit with them for a while so that they become empowered. Mm. And no, I'm gonna give you another metaphor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Goosebumps on the bridge. Often, <laughs> often, yeah, when you're in a dark place, you, can, you, you wanna lock yourself in your bedroom, right, and shut the door, right? And so you can lock yourself in the bedroom and shut the door. And what people tend to do is they come and bang on the door and they want to help you. And it's like banging on the door. It's like, come on, come out, speak. Come on, come and talk to me. Come and talk to me, right? And then, and you like, you're in your mind and you think, I want to, but I don't want to. I'm not, I'm not ready to talk yet. I can't, I can't do it. And then they bang and they say, come on, come on. They get you under pressure. Come on, let's make it better. Let's talk, let's talk. And you're like, can I, shall I? And then eventually they do the whole like, well, 
if you don't want to help yourself, yeah, then what's the point of me being here? And then they go. And when they go, you're like, oh, I should have spoke. Like, maybe I should have done something, yeah? If you really want to help someone, you can just tap on the door and say, I don't know if you're ready to speak to me now. I don't know if you're ready to go in the right direction, but I'm going to sit here and wait until you're ready. Wow. And then and then you wait. And then you wait. And you might do something every now and then just to let that person know that you're still there, but you wait. And then if you imagine that you'll put that person in the dark and you know they're there, you know they're not going, all of a sudden you start to feel empowered. You're not under stress or under pressure to take that help when it's there being offered. You can start to be like, you know, in the end, you might make a noise and say, like, are you still there? And I'm still there. All mm. oh, right, cool. Yeah, yeah, like you're, and then you're supported all of a sudden. Yeah? yeah, you're not, you're not being dragged. You're not being pulled. You're, you're empowered to know that when you're ready, when you're ready, there's, there's a way out. Mm. Amazing. For me, I think we've asked, well, I mean, I've asked every question no, I want to know, yeah. but, um, Oh, you were, you were really wanting to dig deep on resilience today, weren't you? Without well, that, is, yeah, I mean, that. deeper than I could imagine, really. Wow. Okay, because he's used tragic, like you know, childhood trauma to to be resilient now. Yeah, I think a good parting question, I think, for anyone out there who may probably be suffering from alcoholism or addiction, what would your advice be to try and get through that? As a parting, it's quite hard for for as a parting question. Yeah, it's a big it's a big one. I think like um, firstly to distinguish what alcoholism and addiction is, and it's not necessarily um, a desire to use when you wake up in the morning. It's about a relationship that you have with alcohol or a relationship that you have with drugs and the reasons that you're using them. Um, and if when you're not using drink and drugs, life just seems too painful to bear. Um, whether that be because a lot of people that struggle with drink and drugs will go Monday to Wednesday without doing them to show that they ain't got a problem because they can go Monday to Wednesday without doing them but it's driven by the fact that on Thursday they can get straight back on it mm. so you're still controlled by it still engrossed in it and if that's the case then change can happen and if you can reach out to people like I say 12 step fellowships were a really good starting point for me because they they put me in with a group of people that had been through what I'd been through and made me feel like they gave me that hope, that idea that there might be something better. Um, so it is it is knowing that no matter how far down the scale you've gone, that there is there is an opportunity, um, there is hope and there is a chance for something better for you in the world. And to, to very quickly pick up on the resilience thing, resilience is different for everybody, right? Resilience is a very personal thing, right? Um, but the biggest mistake people make with resilience is they mistake coping as resilience. Yes. So when people are at work, they say, I need to be resilient, I need to be resilient, um, I need to be resilient. And then, so when they're faced with a problem, they do the worst thing, which is suppress, mm -hmm. to cope. And then they'll find ha ways to cope with that. And what people often I find with everybody that I work with within business is they go home and they're not the best mum or dad they can be to their children because they, they, they're the ones who get presented with the bill for what they've suppressed during the day. Mm. And resilience is about taking the emotion, validating it, so when something disturbs you, validating it, recognizing that it's disturbed you, and then altering it, and using that emotion actually to drive you into the next stage rather than suppressing it, because um, that's only gonna lead to, to somebody having some kind of pain somewhere down the line. Amazing. Josh, that's brilliant. That, thank you so much. Um, I will put everything on on this when it goes out. I'm not going to say the date that I think it's going to go out. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you might be able to answer this better than I can. But for all of our <laughs> listeners, where where can we find you on social media? Uh, so uh, on Instagram and Twitter, it's just Josh underscore FFW. Um, but my website's joshconnolly.co.uk. Beautiful website. I might add. Oh, yeah. Have yeah, you, it's a good website. Yeah, yeah. It's all right, isn't it? I did, I did that myself as well. Yeah, oh, really? It's decent. Yeah, There's so Somerset myself. coming back. It's yeah. all right. Yeah. It's all right. 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 So, joshconnolly.co.uk. And the Instagram is... Josh underscore FFW. But if you go on my website, it's linked to everything. that You know, there's stuff on YouTube and all that stuff as well. But I'm really active on... On Instagram. social media, well, yeah. so we see. Well, look, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, we'll look forward to getting this out. You've been brilliant. Yeah. Cheers, man. Good, cheers. Yeah, Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at Dog Days Pod. Leave us a comment, let us know what you think, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>